Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. All right, well, it is Friday, August the 28th, and the reason that I note that is I'm going to make a couple of historical references here, and they will only make sense in the future if we put a pin in the calendar date. So President Donald Trump officially accepted the nomination of the GOP at the Republican National Convention last night. That only makes sense if you know that today is Friday the 28th of August 2020. Uh, The speech was an hour and a half long. It... um, I would say it was State of the Union-esque in its approach in terms of uh, ticking off a litany of uh, of the president's accomplishments in office and forecasting what he would do with a second term, at least in part, at least in part. Uh, the speech took place on the South Lawn of the White House and um, I think spectacle, I mean, I, not, not in a, not in any, not meant in any dysphemistic way, but um, I think the word spectacle is a... Um, is an apt description, and if you haven't seen the footage, probably uh, well worth your attention to watch. Um, And then I'm going to lift up one uh, quick headline here that you would have no reason to be paying attention to if you were not living in the state of Georgia. But because, um, because I think it's a bellwether race to watch in terms of the region that we might have formerly called the Bible Belt, there is a Senate race going on in the state of Georgia Um, where a pastor, an African-American pastor, who's very involved, has been very involved, continues to be very involved, very um, high-profile man, Pastor Warnock, in the uh, civil rights movement. Um, In fact, he he holds the pulpit, the iconic pulpit of Martin Luther King Jr. at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Um, He's running for a Senate seat. And this matters. This matters because he is not only a pastor, but he is— pro every variety and and public funding for abortion that you could imagine. And so the reason that I lift this up is because uh, if you hear that a pastor is running for a political office, you may say, oh, you know, that's great. That's, that person's going to bring um, a, a biblical morality to bear on the issues of the day. We're talking here about a person who is going to um, put into public policy things that my private religion affirms and confirms. Um, this will be a person who it helps shape and form public policy based on a Christian worldview. Okay, so because that's what we hear, and, and that's what we think when we hear the word pastor. That's the mental hook that we generally have uh, set in our minds that we are then hanging things on. So uh, words no longer mean what maybe they once meant. And so you have to look a little deeper. You have to dig a little deeper. You have to ask more questions. And let me just tell you that this entire race uh, in the state of Georgia is being um, framed around race, around the racial question. And so the the question put before white, largely Christian, suburban voters in the state of Georgia is, do you really mean, are you really willing to put your vote 
where you have said that your heart has moved in terms of the racial conversation. The challenge for Christians in Georgia is going to be just because um, I have a very great clarity um, that uh, that on the on the racial front, we have been in the wrong place in the United States of America. And that, yes, substantive change needs to take place. (laughs) I am not moved on the abortion question. Um, And so that is going to be a difficult uh, conversation particularly for white Christians in Georgia, to have with one another. Um, and they're going to be accused if they don't vote for uh, for Pastor Warnock, if they don't vote for him um, for this uh, Senate seat, then, you know, they're going to be castigated as racist, when in fact what they may be uh, casting is a pro-life vote. So the challenges are great out there. We need to be lifting one another up in prayer. Um, and we need to be having very honest and open conversations about the meaning of words uh, and where our hearts lead us to uh, to put our vote. All right, up next, uh, I've got Matthew Hawkins. He and I are going to talk about the speech delivered by the Vice President of the United States this week at the RNC and a number of pro-life headlines. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins. He's a public theologian. You can read what he's writing at MatthewTHawkins.com. You can also listen to his podcast, Crossing Faiths. Matt, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks for having I know me back. You, I know you were excited that maybe you would have an extra 30 seconds today, but um, I already <laughs> used it, so I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I, I, told Paul, I told Paul my fee was going to increase. Yeah, yeah, I have to renegotiate your contract. Yeah, uh, for for everyone listening right now, um, we don't pay our guests anything. They come out of the uh, generosity of their spirit to share uh, to share with us and have conversations here on air. Um, let's talk about the specifically the um, speech delivered this week by the Vice sure. President of the United States, Mike Pence, at the RNC. What's your sure. you know what you know just sort of give us a give us an overview. What was your takeaway? Yeah. So uh, first of all, uh, uh, as as in uh, just about anything in politics, context matters. And uh, we are now complete with two straight weeks of uh, partisan infomercials. I mean, conventions. And we um, anticipate a certain amount of uh, uh, partisan wrangling and uh, trumpeting of your party over the other, uh, and we saw plenty of that in both different in in both um, the Republican convention and the, the Democrat convention, and uh, a lot of that's to be expected. Um, and even when I was working in the policy space, even when it wasn't a campaign season, uh, you, you would if you if you hosted an event and invited um, members of Congress to come speak at your event, uh, like a public policy event, a briefing, uh, you always kind of had to make room for or kind of anticipate that a an elected official is going to do what an elected official is going to do. Uh, and often that is a stump speech. And so the acceptance speech of Vice President Pence for the nomination of Vice President at the Republican Convention is certainly uh, certainly not set apart from that at all. Uh, we actually would expect maybe the most uh, partisan speeches to come out uh, during uh, conventions. Um, but Vice President Pence... Um, raised a lot of eyebrows uh, in his closing um, because he mixed some biblical language 
with uh, his talk about America. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, let me just read this paragraph. Quote, so let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire. Let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom and never forget that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That means freedom always wins. And then he goes on to close. Um, I understand a lot of people uh, were are, are, are taken off by that. Um, the uh, I kind of have maybe a nuanced <laughs> analysis of it. Uh, so on the one hand, um, American history is is ripe with. Um, our leaders using kind of uh, using biblical language uh, to talk about our nation. Um, I think most you know most prominently uh, in Ronald Reagan's "City on a City on a Hill" issue is um, was uh, is certainly a biblical language uh, that he was talking about uh, an aspirational goal of America, um, and it goes obviously back to our founding and and even before that. Um, so a lot of people accused Vice President Pence of, quote, political idolatry here. Um, but American history, as I indicated, has a long history of what what we can, can call civil religion. Um, so I'm kind of torn here on what the Vice President did here. Um, I think part of the challenge here is he uses language here that Christians particularly apply uh, and that in Scripture apply to salvation. And mixing salvation lingo with um, the nation state and and obligations to the nation state makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Um, so I'm willing to put this in the category of civil religion that's not a great example of civil religion. <laughs> Um, but I'm not quite ready to call it political idolatry, um, for my part. What do you think? What was your read on that, Carmen? So I'm one of those people who thinks that anytime you can trot out a Bible passage and actually educate people about it, um, is a good day in media. So, right. Sure. um, right. So, so for CNN and MSNBC to have to whip the, have to like have somebody like figure out where did that come from and why are, why right. are some, uh, some Christians upset about, you know, the possible misuse of uh, of a truncated verse of Scripture like that to right. me is a good day. Right. So so in terms sure. of um, uh, an educational because tool, the, his word will never return void. Well, that's exactly right. And if you if you actually like force the media to I mean, they're not actually opening the Bible. Please don't get me wrong here. But they did have to sure. Google it and they're going to be like, oh, my goodness. I mean, I have no idea what this means. But clearly there are some Christians that think it means something other than what uh, what Mike Pence said it means. So maybe there's a question yeah. here to be asked. Um, and, you know, maybe possibly that creates a platform for a Christian to honestly um, be able to say to other people, hey, we actually do believe that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Here's what that means. Here's what it means to fix your eyes yeah. on Jesus. Here's what it means. And yes, did the uh, did the vice president of the United States take that scripture and apply it in a way that is complex and controversial? Yes. But that's actually what Christians are trying to do every single day. We're trying to take the Bible, we're trying to apply it to the realities of our life, and we're trying to walk it out in every, you know, in every arena and every aspect. And so here's, you know, here's a person of faith seeking to 
walk out a Bible passage in his life, and he's doing so in a very, very public way. So do I understand the criticisms coming from um, those of us who are evangelical Christians? Yes, I totally 100% get it. Um, Do I also see the advantage of... uh, of using scripture in public in a way that forces people to ask a question and have a conversation? Yes, I do. I mean, I'm, yeah. you know, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I recognize the fault found um, with the vice president in this case, but I also recognize um, the very real opportunity that it gives us to point directly to scripture and what scripture yeah. actually says about something. And that for me is always a good day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the, I, I like the way you're looking at that. I, um, I agree. It's, it's helpful and, and a good opportunity to talk about scripture in, in public. Um, I think the, the thing that most concerns me about, about the lingo here is, is the, his use of our, um, who, uh, let's fix our eyes on glory. Mm-hmm. Let's fix our eyes, the perfecter of our faith and freedom. Well, he's speaking as the vice president of the United States, uh, mm-hmm. and not everyone in the United States uh, holds the same view of, of Jesus, um, and certainly not our our salvific view of Jesus. And so, when he uses the our language, language um, th- that that's troubling to me um, from leaders who who need to be representing all of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that, that, that gives me pause. Um, no, I so think I totally. definitely, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to slam any, everybody for, uh, uh, deploying biblical lingo, uh, and language in public. Um, I do want us to be a little more nuanced and, and cautious about, about how we do that, uh, particularly when we're, um, when we have elect, elected officials using the words our, <laughs> In, in yeah, public. and it gives so us as a, it does yeah. it gives us as Christians an opportunity to say we recognize that our eyes are fixed on Jesus. We also recognize that everyone's eyes are not fixed on Jesus. Like there is a you know that right. is a difference. And as Americans, we should say we live in a pluralistic culture, and we recognize everyone's eyes are not fixed on Jesus. Um, right. And so the what the vice president is seeking to do is say you know what is the thing that we collectively as Americans could have our eyes fixed on, and he points then to the flag. So, right. I, you know, there there is an opportunity there to um, to offer commentary on the speech that I think is helpful in our public discourse. So, um, yeah, I wish I'd been the person CNN called to uh, to to suss that out. That would have been fun. Or, All right. Or, or, if, or, if, or if you and I had been speechwriters. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, if you and I had been speechwriters. Oh, yes. The world would be um, it would it would be a dandy place. OK, Matt Hawkins and I will be right back. We got to take a very brief break. Um, we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. All right, we're going to have to save for another week what the world would be like if Matthew Hawkins and Carmen LeBurge were speechwriters. Um, but <laughs> that would be a fun speculative uh, uh, segment to have. Um, let's talk about this. You and I have both read a piece by, um, by Jeannie Mancini uh, at National yep. Review on um, how a Biden administration would erase progress on pro-life policies. I think these are important conversations for us to have in terms of how we're, how we're approaching yeah. Um, our own decision making related to the upcoming election, like what would a Biden administration do on the pro-life front versus what would a second Trump term um, look like on this front? So let's deal with um, let's deal with this critique by Jeannie Mancini. Yeah. So um, Jeannie Mancini is the president of March for Life. And uh, we worked uh, frequently together on Capitol Hill. We like her a lot. Let's just go ahead and say Matt and I both like her a lot. Yeah. 
if you if you want to know what's going on um, in the pro life movement, uh, genies, uh, there are few people um, uh, that I would recommend more highly. Uh, than than Jeannie Mancini. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, having her as part of a pro-life messaging training on Capitol Hill that we did for some students uh, several years ago. Um, she's a delight. Uh, it's a really great to her at the at the helm of the March for Life. Um, uh, and uh, so when she speaks about abortion policy, um, we we ought to listen. And so her piece in the National Review outlines um, what is at risk on the pro-life front uh, in this particular election. And uh, and she's absolutely right. Um, now, we've talked before that apart from just judges and, um, and basically health and human services policies, um, there's not much that Republicans have done at the national level um, to affect uh, abortion policy, uh, to restrict it. Um, nothing has passed in Congress. Um, and uh, and yet, policies matter, um, and administrative policies matter, and especially with a, a federal government as large as the one we have now, and as far-reaching, and with uh, expansive laws like uh, Obamacare, um, the Affordable Care Act, um, the presidency makes a big difference on on abortion policies, um, where frankly it's you know. You get you get into this stuff on Capitol Hill, and it's frankly like whack-a-mole, Carmen. Uh, you you have to look uh, kind of for pro you know pro-life or abortion-related policies in just about everything, um, because where there is any kind of federal funding um, for social services programs, for medical insurance, for medical coverage, um, pro-choice, pro-abortion advocates uh, and policymakers always try to sneak something in uh, whatever legislation is going forward. Um, and so it can be obscure, um, but that's why we need professionals who who uh, understand the policy game and who can work on Capitol Hill and uh, and and basically, you know, uh, counter uh, those kinds of moves. Um, so, you know, I want to look at Jeannie's piece and recognize that uh, a lot is at stake in this election as there are as there always is. And I'm, I want to encourage pro-lifers, uh, particularly pro-life Christians, to think about what our political witness could look like in the future um, or what American politics could look like in the future. Uh, if you uh, took in any of the conventions the last couple of weeks and are discontent or uh, frustrated or even angry uh, at either week of convention, um, Let's we, you know, let's stop battling necessarily over who you think we ought to vote for uh, in a very polarized, uh, very binary kind of situation. What does it look like to build the groundwork beginning now for a future where both political parties are more influenced by a Christian worldview than they are now? Um, I think there's a lot to work to be done in both political parties. Um, there's only one political party now who uh, proclaims to be and is not afraid of saying they're on uh, the right side of the abortion issue, being pro-life. Um, but we've talked critically before about how they haven't exactly delivered on, on a lot of fronts. And so what would it look like um, for the Democrat Party to have a meaningful pro-life presence? Uh, the pro-life presence in the Democrat Party has declined over the last several years. Um, over the last decade, really, 
uh, to almost nothing at the national level. Um, but what would it look like uh, for Christians to make that to begin to make that difference? I think my one my one main critique of the pro-life movement is that uh, leaders in the early years were too short-sighted. Uh, we thought we could get stuff done with just one political party. Uh, but American politics shows that um, meaningful, lasting change, particularly legislation at the federal level, um, is more secure when it's bipartisan. And it's very rare. Uh, the Affordable Care Act being uh, passed by uh, the Democrats um, and uh, tax reform being passed largely by Republicans uh, under the Trump administration, those are the outliers. Um, and frequently, uh, if they're not... Uh, significantly altered or overturned or something like that, um, it, the country becomes very, very discontent with them and they become, the issue becomes more partisan. What would it look like to begin to build a pro-life future in which this issue is less partisanized? Uh, it take, it'd take a lot of work. Uh, it takes a lot of funding. Um, but we had what, 15, 16 Republican candidates primary candidates right. for president uh, in, in 2016, um, for crying out loud, uh, that's a lot of also-rans and a millions upon millions of dollars that maybe in the future could be put to better use um, countering Planned Parenthood dollars in Democrat primaries. Um, I, it's a theory. Uh, I, I would join me in that vision, uh, but that's really what it's going to take if we're serious about uh, altering America's abortion policies. All right, Matt Hawkins, thank you so much. Um, it is a vision cast. Let's continue to talk about it, and let's talk about um, how such a thing might be implemented in the future. Um, you and I can talk about that in the coming weeks, months, and years. Thank you, Carmen. Have All a right, great thanks, weekend. Man. You too. You too. Hey, we'll be right back. What's happening in the world of social media? How are you engaging in social media? I actually um, got an email this week from a pastor in Arizona, um, just, just just straight up asking, like, you know, I'm I'm not sure that my church is uh, is engaging appropriately. I'm not sure that I, as a pastor, am engaging appropriately. How do I know? Like, where are where are the borders of um, of these conversations? That's what uh, Chris Martin at Lifeway Social uh, Voices, that's what he talks about all the time. And so um, he's going to join me now uh, again this week. We're going to talk about disagreeing with people um, on social media. We're going to talk about um, that the effect that that has on us, people's perceptions of the effect that has on them. Um, and then we're going to also talk about um, what I'm going to describe as a fairly new trend. But my guess is you're already a part of it. And that is um, those things that we support no longer um, necessarily like online or publicly before other people, but via our text capacity, the text capacity of our phones. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You've got rules at home. You enforce them. And when one of your children crosses the line, they pay the consequences, right? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you're in a family, you deal with discipline issues. But I want to take just a moment to remind you of what's behind those rules and consequences. The root of discipline is this. Mom and dad, you are helping your child get to a place he wants to be. And you're keeping him from a place he doesn't want to end up. 
Next time you find yourself buried in the nitty-gritty daily details of enforcing rules at home, there's a purpose behind your actions. And discipline, combined with relationship, leads to a really good place. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. All right, joining me now, Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voices. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at ChrisMartin17. Welcome back, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, I'm just telling you that um, like three minutes ago, I sent out a text message over our little uh, little Mornings with Carmen text line to 100 listeners. So I'm gauging, um, I'm gauging whether or not we have a texting tribe, and I will uh, tell you the answer to that question after the break. But Great. let me just go. Let me just go ahead and say, if you didn't get a text message from me on your phone just a minute ago, and you want to uh, demonstrate to Chris that we have uh, the a texting tribe out there, just text me anything at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. So again, just text me anything um, at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four, so we can demonstrate to Chris Martin that in fact we here at Mornings with Carmen have a texting tribe. Okay, before we get to that topic, let's talk about uh, this other topic. Um, people who disagree with me um, cause me harm. What about it? Well, okay. Do you, do so, you believe it? Do you believe it? No, because I um, I have a fairly Teflon-like um, exterior. Um, sure. I, I, I am the water rolls off the back of the duck human. And so I don't know why I'm made that way. Maybe it's because every single morning I like actually put on the full armor of God. Um, and maybe other people are not actually doing that, but I feel like God gives us that passage in Ephesians 6 for a reason because he knows we need it. Um, but other people do perceive themselves to be harmed. Like they, they're not just offended. They claim to be harmed when someone else disagrees with them. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So I'm in the middle of writing a book on how the social internet affects our lives. And I call it the social internet, not just social media, because when we talk about social media, you think apps come to your mind right away, right? Uh, social media logos come to your mind right away. You think, oh, the social internet or the so or social media, that's Instagram and Facebook and Twitter or whatever. And you think of these different these different platforms. And all of those certainly are social media. Uh, but the social internet, the, the whole internet as we use it is social. Google is social. When you search something in Google, what Google returns to you is not an answer that some robot or some computer came up with. The answer that's returned to you in Google is usually a web page that has content input into it by a human. So even even Google, as we understand it, is social media and YouTube is social media. Um, so the whole Internet really is social. And so in this book I'm writing on the social Internet, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about here and there as we get closer, just because it's everything I'm writing is is uh, always on my mind, as you can imagine. The whole book is built around five lies we believe when we are on the social internet. Um, and one of the most common lies we believe when we engage online uh, a lot is uh, people who disagree with me cause me harm. Uh, now, a, a lot of folks don't believe this lie. This is probably one of the less common lies than some of the others. Um, but it is really pervasive in some circles. Um, and I think it's it's really – unhelpful when people believe that people who disagree with me cause me harm, because I think when disagreement is equated with harm or violence, 
it's uh, it's laying the groundwork for what is commonly called cancel culture, which is uh, another lie, a lie that flows from people who disagree with me, cause me harm, is the lie that we must dismantle the lives of harmful people, that if people are harming me, then we have to ruin their lives. Um, and so there are three, I think there are three kind of uh, lies or, or, or truths. There are three truths that we don't believe that lead to this lie. So first is uh, that it's okay to feel unsafe. So safety is like one of the greatest values in American culture right now. And it has been for a while. Um, I think 9-11 really wrought this, right? So after 9-11, uh, safety became like a top priority for everyone. Um, mm. Airlines started talking about safety in ways they never really talked about safety before. I think in the same way right now with coronavirus, um, hygiene slash safety is just being reinforced because everyone in so many ads right now are just advertising how clean or how safe or how protective. Bro, I got into I got into a rental car. I got into a rental car yesterday. There's a sticker on the rearview mirror. Um, identifying all of the products used to disinfect the vehicle that I'm in and telling me that when I get to the exit, I'm supposed to hold my uh, my driver's license up against a closed window to protect myself. Yeah. That's yeah. just bananas. So, yeah. Right. And so many different like surveillance policies, whether people agree with them or not, like the Patriot Act or things like that. So many survey like government surveillance policies were implemented after 9-11 in the name of safety. And the question is like, what do we trade off with those things? But safetyism uh, is is kind of an ethic that has pervaded American culture for almost 20 years now. Safetyism, if you don't know what that is, um, there are two authors, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. They define safetyism as a culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value, which means people are unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical or moral concerns. So safety trumps everything else no matter how unlikely or trivial the danger that they perceive may be. And so this safetyism has kind of pervaded the internet where um, if I'm going to be made to feel uncomfortable, that's kind of feeling unsafe because it may make me mentally or emotionally unstable. And mental health is rightly getting a lot of attention today, but but it's kind of overreaching to this point where uh, we're just becoming too protective and too too safe. And so if if we perceive safety as the ultimate value, the idea that someone is vehemently disagreeing with me uh, can make me feel unsafe. And that's and that would be harming what we hold most dear, which means we're going to feel grievously offended, which then leads to what we see as as cancel culture. So I think safetyism is a big is a big thing. The second thing is we're not as fragile as we think we are. So mm. there's a great there's a great book. Now, Rich Mullins is right. I have to say this. Rich Mullins is right when he wrote his song, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are, which is a great song. And I highly recommend some early 90s or maybe even late 80s CCM right there. Um, so he's right. We're not as strong as we think we are. But at the same time, we're not as fragile as we think we are. There's a great book called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, where he talks about three different categories of of being. There's uh, fragile um, I forget what the middle one is. It's like it's like dense or or uh, resilient and then anti-fragile. So fragile things, it's like a vase, right? When you drop it on the ground, it breaks. Um, resilient is like, you know, like this hardwood desk that I'm knocking on. It, it doesn't get stronger by going through adversity, but it doesn't break under adversity either. If I hit my desk, if I hit my wood desk with a hammer, it doesn't break. If I hit a vase with a hammer, it does. But the desk is not made stronger by being hit with the hammer. It just kind of deals with it. 
anti-fragile, things that are anti-fragile get stronger with adversity. Our, the human muscles are anti-fragile, right? If you, don't, if you don't exercise the human muscles, not that you got to be bench pressing 300 pounds, but if you don't go for a walk or if you're just kind of sedentary and sit around in your desk all day and you don't really exercise your legs, your leg muscles start to deteriorate. You need to give resistance or adversity to your leg muscles in order for them to grow and become stronger. The point uh, Taleb makes in his book, Anti-Fragile, is humans and the human mind are anti-fragile. If we constantly protect ourselves from difficulty and from adversity because we think we need to remain safe, we, if we treat ourselves as fragile, we actually atrophy ourselves, atrophy our minds and our emotional mental states because we've reduced the amount of adversity we endure so that when adversity does come, adversity we can't control, we're unable to deal with it and we, we basically write our own destiny, fulfill our own prophecy, we make ourselves fragile, by treating ourselves like we're fragile, uh, even though we're not. And so I think we're, we all need to recognize, we're, we we all need to be ducks that let water run off our backs, more like you, Carmen. And and you you might have been thinking that your whole life, I just wish people were more like me. Um, but but we we <laughs> no. all need to be, we need we need to be better at at letting letting things go and and recognizing that adversity can make us and is meant in some way to make us stronger. That's not to say trauma is like okay. Um, but we, but we need to be, we need to recognize that adversity really does make us stronger and that we need to not protect ourselves from, from disagreement in this case, uh, disagreement on the internet because disagreement and sharpening can really make us uh, better, sharper human beings. So I think that's important. I like that. Um, well, first of all, I like all of those points, but I like just the reminder that adversity, um, first of all, you can't avoid it. I mean, it's going to come. I mean, yes. and, um, and that it that you're stronger than you think in terms of um, of your not just your resilience, but your fragility. Like we, you know, God made us to be uh, to be enduring. Um, and then that in, that adversity really does. I mean, if if processed appropriately, it does make us stronger because it it, it enables me to better understand um, that actually the world is not conformed to me. The world is not conformed to the way I think or to my image, that there, there, there is a really broad diversity of thought out there, and I am bringing the way I think to bear on that. And as a Christian, I'm you know, ideally bringing the mind of Christ to bear on each and every one of those things. And Jesus lived in the context of a lot of people who disagreed with him all the time. Right. Yeah. All right. Yep. Hey, we have to take a very brief break, but let me just tell you, um, I have a text tribe and I now have actual evidence that they exist. I know their awesome. names. I know. I know. So when we come back, I'm going to talk with Chris Martin about the power of texting and how um, it's actually become a thing now where people are uh, actually building these communities uh, via text. If you are listening right now and you just want to be counted in the text tribe for Mornings with Carmen, just text the word tribe or frankly anything else. And thank you for those of you who've taken that challenge uh, in a creative spirit. Just text anything that you want to 877-933-2484 um, and you're just going to be counted in the tribe in this conversation. All right. That's what we're talking about next with Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voices. We'll be right back. All right, I'm uh, trying to keep up with all the incoming text messages on our text line, 877-933-2484. Um, if you're listening right now, you just want to be counted as a part of the tribe, all you just text anything you want to that number. And thank you to the more than 100 people who have already done this. 
uh, this morning. What fun um, I'm having because it just never occurred to me to approach this conversation in this way. Um, First time listener from the 847 area code. Hey, welcome to the tribe. You, you couldn't have picked a better first day to listen to Mornings with Carmen. Chris Martin is here from Lifeway Social Voices. Chris, let's talk about texting. What is going on right now as people are blowing up the text line for the show to say, hey, I'm here, count me in, versus going to the website, signing up for an email, or putting themselves on some kind of public list? Yeah, so so texting is a form of communication between public figures like yourself or uh, or other public figures like I've seen I've seen YouTubers doing this. I've seen um, other other sort of celebrities doing this, just public figures in general, uh, setting up text lines with fans to be able to communicate with them. You know, a celebrity, a, a famous YouTuber may have their you know, they have their own cell phone, but they'll set up another text line through a different app so that they can go in there and be able to chat with fans. However, you know, whenever they want. And, and you know, there, there are some. YouTubers probably getting thousands of texts a minute just because that's how their fans roll uh, and they can't really handle all of them. But I think it's a really great – I think it's really cool, and I didn't even know you are doing it. So I actually want to hear from you a little bit. I understand you know, you're the interviewer and I'm the interviewee, but I think I should interview you about this for a minute here. Uh, but I think the – I think it's really cool because and, – and here's another thing. We talked at the top of my segment here about – uh, how social media is more than Facebook, it's more than Twitter, it's more than Instagram, all the apps that come to mind. The, the social internet really is a better term. It goes far beyond those apps that we think of because what you're doing is social media. What you're not, you don't think of it as social media. And if somebody said, Carmen, what's your social media strategy? You probably wouldn't list your text line because it seems so separate, but you're using the internet effectively to communicate and be social with your audience. And so I think it's tremendous that you have the ability to create the uh, that you have the ability to create community with your audience through something as simple as a text line. The great here's why texting works as a communication tool, even more than email, because email is like sending a letter, right? It's so I mean, you can be emailing someone in real time and 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 back and forth kind of in an immediate way. But it is kind of email is more of a, a temporal medium where it's like, all right, I'm going to send an email at 6.50 in the morning, and they might e- they might email me back at 8.50 or 12 o'clock or something like that. Whereas with chatting, with texting, you're going back and forth immediately. It's an immediate form of being able to chat back and forth. And so people can join in and chat about the show as as you're doing it. And so I think that's tremendous, and it's a, it's a form of social media that we often don't think about. A lot of people forget social media is meant to be social. A lot of folks who are public figures use it as sort of a stage on which they perform and just make people realize how funny they are, smart they are, or whatever else. But social media is really meant to be a two-way street of communication where where public figures and and uh, their fans or their their colleagues or uh, friends can engage with them. And I think what you're doing through the text line is is really tremendous. And I think it's great. I think it will. Um, if if you were asking me to advise you on on social strategy, I think something like this is brilliant uh, because I think. Uh, People might join your email list to keep up to date with, oh, who was on the show this week or on the show today or or whatever. Um, but they they can't communicate with you through that. They can't mm-hmm. communicate sort of in a live way. And so it's it's a totally even though both are messaging and both are at their base are basically the same. They they're totally different in in their form and function. So I want to hear from you, Carmen. Let me interview you for a second before before we have to end my time. Why why have you appreciated your text line so much? What's been so good about it for you? 
I love that um, that listeners feel free to ask questions or raise concerns about things that are being said on the program, and they're doing so in real time, which means that um, I have the I, I it, it is more like a real conversation than me just having a conversation with you with uh, a silent third witness. The listener actually has the opportunity to engage in real time with our conversation. And so, um, I mean, just already, I mean, one one person who has texted in this morning in response to this says, you know, awesome, I'm in the tribe, but let me let you know that I have a sister who's actually offended by that term um, because she views Christians as having a tribe, you know, a tribe or tribal mentality. Um, So, you know, so I've texted her back and say, hey, that's interesting. Um, And then I said, well, Carmen Nation seemed seemed too me-centric. So I felt ashamed to ask people, hey, if you're in the Carmen Nation, (laughs) <laughs> right? Because that seems nutty. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I, I appreciate the real-time um, opportunity to interact. I also appreciate that over time, um, in addition to knowing their phone number and their area code, sometimes people say where they're texting in from. They, t- yeah. they, they talk about how they're listening. And in some cases, I actually know their name. That's so. Cool. Uh, and then I can respond to them by name. You know, I can say, I, you know, I, hey, you know, yeah. Lucy or JC or, or Caroline or Carol or Jessica or on and on and on. Yeah. Right. I think it's cool because it just allows you to serve your audience in so much more. I'm all about when it comes to creating Christian content online or as you do through the radio, which is online and not online. I'm all about making sure the content we're creating is as helpful to the audience as it can possibly be, because that's why we're here. That's what we're doing. And I think this allows you to in real time, rather than once a month or whenever you get to kind of pull your audience and hear from them, it allows you to in real time, uh, get a pulse of your audience, hear what their concerns are. And as much as you can with the guests that you've already planned and the show you've kind of already planned, tailor your content to the current needs of your audience as best as you can. And I think that just allows you to serve them better and, and be a more faithful steward of the gifts you've been given. So I think that's really cool. I think it's really great. Well, we are going to, um, I will aggregate the numbers. I'm clearly going to have to add a group to my little uh, texting. Uh, I, I have two little groups set up, but you can only put 50 people in a group. So I'm clearly going to have to make at least one other group. Um, it's fun to talk with you, Chris. It's fun to talk about something that obviously was immediately relevant to the conversations that we're having with our own listeners here on Mornings with Carmen. So thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, good to talk to you. That's Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voices. You can check him out. He's got a sub stack called Terms of Service. Check that out. You can also follow him on Twitter at Chris Martin 17. We'll be right back. All right, we got another hour up next. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. More mornings with Carmen ahead. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.